Hello, and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. This episode is going to cover one company, but actually two companies, because you can't talk about the De Laurentiis Entertainment Group without going into its predecessor, Embassy Pictures. The story of Embassy Pictures begins in September 1942, when New England-based movie theater owner Joseph E. Levine started buying up the rights to low-budget westerns to play at his small chain of theaters. The success of these programs would lead Levine to start acquiring sub-distribution rights in the 1940s from Burstyn Meyer Films to such movies as Roberto Rossellini's Rome Open City and Vittorio De Sica's Bicycle Thieves, as well as, in the 1950s, Samuel Z. Arkoff's newly formed International American Pictures. In 1956, Levine would hit it big again when he spent $12,000 to acquire the American distribution rights to a Japanese monster film called Gojira, spend another $400,000 dubbing almost all of the Japanese dialogue into English, altering and removing major plot points and themes, and shooting new footage with American actor Raymond Burr to make it seem like he was always part of the original Japanese production. The success of the now-titled Godzilla, King of the Monsters, would lead Levine doing something similar to an Italian sword and sandal movie the following year. Levine would spend $120,000 redubbing, changing the sound effects, and creating new titles for the Steve Reeves starring Hercules. The redone movie would be distributed by Warner Brothers Pictures, as Embassy Pictures did not have the ability to release a movie into a then-wide release of 500-plus theaters, although Levine himself would still spend over a million dollars promoting the movie. Hercules would end up becoming the highest-grossing film released in 1959. Embassy Pictures, by the end of 1960, would have local distribution offices in 15 major American cities, as well as in London, Paris, and Rome. Levine would have another major success in 1961, when he brought De Sica's Two Women, starring Sophia Loren, to America. The movie was originally supposed to be made at Paramount Pictures, for whom Loren had made a number of movies with in the past few years. But with Loren as the daughter and Anna Magnani as the mother, under the direction of George Cukor. Cukor and Paramount would eventually drop out of the project, which was being produced by Loren's husband, Carlo Ponti, and Ponti would be the one who signed De Sica up to direct. De Sica thought Loren should be playing the 30-something mother protecting her daughter from the horrors of war, even though she was only 26 at the time. The film was financed through Italian and French investors, which is how French actor Jean-Paul Belmondo came to play a major role in the film. While the movie was in production, Ponte would screen rushes of the film, individual scenes not yet edited into a cohesive whole, for Levine on one of his trips to the Rome office, in search of an American distributor. Levine saw less than 10 minutes of footage and bought the rights then and there, and predicting that Loren would win the Academy Award for Best Actress. She would, and the film would gross more than $6 million in the U.S. in 1961, which would be around $52 million in 2020. 
Embassy would also be the American distributor for such classics as Divorce Italian Style, Eight and a Half, and Contempt, as well as several movies from De Sica and Ingmar Bergman. By 1967, Embassy was on a roll. They had signed Mike Nichols to direct a film adaptation of Charles Webb's The Graduate before Nichols signed on to make Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and they also produced Mel Brooks's The Producers. The Graduate would become one of the first movies to gross more than $100 million at the American box office, and Nichols would win the Best Directing Oscar for his work on The Graduate, while The Producers would be far less successful at the box office, Brooks would win the statue for Best Original Screenplay the same year as Nichols. And the following year, Embassy would release The Lion in Winter, another major box office success, which would win Academy Awards for Katherine Hepburn for Best Actress, James Goldman for Best Adapted Screenplay, and John Barry for Best Original Score. The company was so successful that Levine decided to cash out, so to speak, selling Embassy Pictures to Avco Corporation, a loose conglomerate of disparate services that mostly worked in the aviation industry. He'd make that sale for $40 million in 1968. Levine, however, would stay on as the CEO of the now Avco Embassy Pictures. But as these things happen, shortly after the sale, the distributor would fall on hard times. Most of their movies between 1969 and 1974 would not have much of an impact at the box office or in popular culture. Only 1971's Mike Nichols drama Carnal Knowledge and 1972's George Siegel, Glenda Jackson romantic comedy A Touch of Class would see any semblance of success. Levine would leave the company in May 1974 and Avco would stop producing films the following year. They would still release movies from other producers, including Farewell, My Lovely, The Sailor Who Fell from Grace with the Sea, Joan Rivers' only film as director, Rabbit Test, and the animated classic Watership Down. But the pause of in-house production would only last three years. In 1978, Avco Embassy would be back in the movie production game, assigning future Academy President Robert Ream as CEO and focusing on lower-budgeted titles. And this new direction would work. The company would have hit films with 1979's Phantasm and The Onion Field, 1980's The Fog, and with Escape from New York, The Howling, Scanners, and Time Bandits, all released in 1981. Norman Lear, the successful producer behind All in the Family, The Jeffersons, one Day at a Time and the Facts of Life would buy Avco Embassy Pictures in January 1982 and with his partner Jerry Perinchio would merge the company with their own production companies Tandem Productions and TAT Communications to form Embassy Communications. With their new owners, Embassy would release such acclaimed films as Ingmar Bergman's Fanny and Alexander, The Ballad of Gregorio Cortez, this is Spinal Tap, The Sure Thing, both from Rob Reiner, and John Borman's The Emerald Forest. But on June 18, 1985, 
two weeks before Embassy would release the Emerald Forest, Lira and Parentio would sell the whole company to Coca-Cola for $485 million. Coke bought the company because they wanted to fold Embassy's massive television production company and library of classic television titles into Columbia Pictures, which they had purchased a few years before. But they would not need yet another distribution arm, with Columbia Pictures and sister company TriStar Pictures, then co-owned with HBO and CBS, into their folds, or another home video arm. So Coke would keep the most valuable parts of the new acquisition and sell Embassy's theatrical distribution arm and home video department to Italian producer Dino De Laurentiis four months later. De Laurentiis, of course, was the larger-than-life producer who would make more than 150 movies between 1938 and his passing in 2010. The list of filmmakers he would work with over his career would blow anyone's mind. Robert Altman, Bruce Beresford, Ingmar Bergman, René Clement, David Cronenberg, Vittorio De Sica, Richard Donner, Edward Dimitrik, Federico Fellini, Milos Forman, William Friedkin, Curtis Hansen, Mike Hodges, John Huston, Sidney Lumet, David Lynch, Michael Mann, Sam Raimi, Martin Ritt, Roberto Rossellini, Ridley Scott, King Vidor, and the Wachowskis. And the list of films he produced included Bitter Rice, La Strada, for which he won the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film, Knights of Cabiria, Battle of the Bulge, The Bible, Danger Diabolique, Barbarella, Serpico, King Kong, The Shootist, Flash Gordon, Halloween 2 and 3, Ragtime, Conan the Barbarian and Conan the Destroyer, Dune, The Dead Zone, and Army of Darkness. In 1983, De Laurentiis was producing an adaptation of the Stephen King novel Firestarter, which was filming in Wilmington, North Carolina. The governor of North Carolina at the time, Jim Hunt, saw the increased economic activity happening around Wilmington during the shooting of Firestarter and proposed tax incentives and loans to get De Laurentiis to buy up a local, large, unused warehouse space and convert it into a production studio. In 1984, with producer Martha Schumacher, De Laurentiis would create that studio as part of his newly formed North Carolina Film Corporation. But De Laurentiis, who financed his own movies, was still subservient to the whims of the ever-changing executives at the major studios. He was tired of having to give up powerful revenue streams like videotape and cable rights in order to get distribution through those other companies. But starting up a completely new distribution company to compete with the studios would have been cost-prohibitive to the independent producer. A perfect storm was brewing. A movie studio needed to dump a fully formed movie distribution apparatus, and an independent producer was looking to create a movie distribution apparatus. De Laurentiis and Coca-Cola started meeting in the summer of 1985, and on November 1st, Embassy Pictures would become a part of the newly formed De Laurentiis Entertainment Group. But Embassy would still release one more movie before officially becoming DEG. Herb Gardner's The Goodbye People, based on his own play, 
would arrive in theaters on January 31, 1986, more than a year after it premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival. When De Laurentiis started his eponymously named studio, he stressed he would be making movies that would be considered major studio-level films, which at the time would be in the $15 to $20 million production range. The first film DEG would release would fall several million dollars under the lowest level of that estimate, even with an up-and-coming major star with their name above the title. We talked a bit about John Irvin's raw deal in our 16th episode about the films of June 1986, but it had all the hallmarks of what should have been a hit film at the time. Arnold Schwarzenegger was coming off the one-two punch of Terminator and Commando, both of which had grossed more than $35 million in theaters, and De Laurentiis was hoping the $12 million raw deal would make enough at the box office to help him finance his long-gestating, expensive adaptation of the Philip K. Dick novel, Total Recall. Poor reviews don't always keep action films away from these type of movies, and Raw Deal would open in second place on June 6, 1986, with a healthy $5.4 million gross. But it would fall out of the top 10 within four weeks, and barely make it to a $16 million final tally. DEG also opened My Little Pony the Movie on June 6th. This was part of a group of low-budget animated movies produced in Japan by the toy manufacturing giant Hasbro, trying to cash in on the popularity of some of their more successful toy lines alongside an animated Transformer movie and an animated G.I. Joe movie. But the problem with these types of movies is that they're done rather cheaply and created not for any kind of artistic merit, but to sell more toys, which means they'd have poorly constructed stories that are boring to kids and adults alike. The movie was produced independently of any studio, and all the major studios would pass on the film. DEG would pick up the three movies as a package deal. Hasbro would get an influx of cash to offset the cost of the productions, and DEG would have three completed films to get out into theaters whenever they had a hole in their release calendar. Of the new movies that opened on June 6th, Raw Deal had the widest release with 1,731 screens. Toby Hoofer's Invaders from Mars screened in 1,212 theaters. The adventure drama Space Camp ran in 979 theaters, and My Little Pony went out to just 421 locations. The theaters that did play the movie screened it to mostly empty houses. Its $416,000 gross would only put it in 10th place, and its $988 per screen average was a good 33% lower than Woody Allen's Hannah and Her Sisters, which had been released 18 weeks earlier and was the movie in 11th place that weekend. My Little Pony would play throughout the summer, mostly matinee-only shows, and it would eventually gross $5.9 million after 29 weeks. The next few DEG movies we also covered in our Summer of 1986 miniseries earlier this summer. Stephen King's Maximum Overdrive was the fifth movie adapted from a King story that had been produced by De Laurentiis, the best of them being David Cronenberg's The Dead Zone, the rest of them being the aforementioned Firestarter, 
Cat's Eye, and Silver Bullet. Maximum Overdrive would have been the first movie King directed, and the last. When the film opened on July 25th, it only opened in 7th place, with $3.2 million from 1,198 theaters. The film would hang around for the remainder of the summer and fall, playing mostly as a B-title at drive-ins. After five and a half months, Maximum Overdrive would only scare up about $7.4 million in ticket sales. August 8th saw the release of that Transformers movie I spoke about a few moments ago. Although the television series had been popular in syndication, the producers of the film and Hasbro themselves wildly underestimated the popularity of one of its prime characters. So when the movie opened, it did okay business. $1.8 million from 990 locations. But word of the killing of that popular character spread quickly, despite the lack of a global social media outlet or any kind of connected interwebs in general, and any hopes for the film becoming a success were dashed. The film would lose half of its audience in week two, and half of that in week three. By Labor Day weekend, week four, it was at the bottom of the top 20, and would soon end its theatrical run with $5.8 million. And that character that was killed off in the movie? The producers rushed to have a new episode of the TV show created to bring that character back to life, and that character remains either the most popular or second most popular Transformer character two generations later. Michael Mann's Manhunter was released on August 15th, Maybe the dog days of summer weren't the best time to release a moody, atmospheric thriller about an FBI agent who resorts to getting help from one serial killer to help catch another serial killer. It was a damn good movie in 1986, and it's only gotten better with time. But at the time, audiences resoundingly rejected the $15 million film. On its opening weekend, the film would only gross $2.2 million dollars from 779 theaters, which isn't exactly chump change, but when you notice that its per screen average was about the same as a thoroughly savage John Candy comedy, Armed and Dangerous, which was also released on the same day, well, what can I say? Sometimes moviegoers had no taste then. DEG would release two movies on September 19th that couldn't have been any more different. The first was Albert Pion's Radioactive Dreams. Now, it's okay if you've never heard of it. The di film didn't have a well-known cast. It didn't have a big budget, a mere $3 million. Its director never had any kind of breakthrough film, although at one time he was slated to direct a Spider-Man movie for the legendary 1980s B-movie factory Canon Films. In fact, his Spider-Man movie was canceled deep into pre-production, so he converted most of the sets and costumes and created the late 80s cult film Cyborg out of its burning ashes, one of the worst movies in the canon library or in star Jean-Claude Van Damme's Au Revoir. Radioactive Dreams tells the story of two young men named, seriously, Philip Hammer and Marlo Chandler, who break out of their fallout shelter 15 years after a nuclear war, 
Having grown up on their own with only 1950s pulp detective novels and music as their history of the world that once existed. They set out on a course of adventure, wanting to make it big as the private eyes like the ones they've spent their entire lives reading about. But the new post-nuclear world had different ideas. The young men are played by John Stockwell and Michael Dudikoff, and they're supported by Lisa Blount, George Kennedy, and Don Murray. The film would open in 15th place with only $141,000 in ticket sales from 90 theaters. By the end of the week, DEG would stop tracking its grosses, which would total $220,000. It's only been released once on VHS in the late 80s, and never on DVD in America. There are two copies of the film up on YouTube as of late August 2020, if you want to check it out. One is a poor copy from a VHS tape and just happens to be missing the last 20 minutes of the movie. The other is a better transfer, but it happens to be in Spanish. You'll have to turn your subtitles on to watch Suenos Radioactivos. The other movie is probably the best-known title they released. From the mind of David Lynch comes a modern-day masterpiece so startling, so provocative, so mysterious, that it will open your eyes to a world you have never seen before. She and warm a memory through the years and I still can see blue velvet Hey neighbor Here I come You got about one second to live buddy In February 1981, Blue Velvet was set up as Lynch's next film project at Warner Brothers around the time he would receive his first Oscar nomination for Best Director for his work on The Elephant Man. Blue Velvet was one of several projects Lynch wanted to bring to fruition, but he'd spend most of his time trying to make Ronnie Rocket his passion project that he returned to time and time again after completing every project between Eraserhead and Twin Peaks, but never ended up getting made. It would be nearly four years between the time he completed Elephant Man and the time he started shooting his adaptation of the Frank Herbert novel Dune for Dino De Laurentiis and Universal Pictures. It would be while in post-production on Dune that Lynch would get the producer interested in making Blue Velvet. Dune was the first in a three-picture contract with De Laurentiis with a planned sequel to Dune being the third film. Lynch would rewrite the script so he could use the North Carolina locations near the DEG studios and began casting the film in the summer of 1985. Kyle MacLachlan, 
The lead in Dune would be the first cast, followed soon thereafter by Dennis Hopper and Laura Dern. Production on Blue Velvet would begin in Wilmington and nearby Lumberton, which reminded Lynch of his hometown of Spokane, Washington, in August 1986 and would be completed by November. Post-production would run throughout the winter and spring. Lynch's first assembly cut of the film would run nearly four hours, which he would finally get down to two, mostly through his own choices, but a few cuts had to be made specifically to appease the MPAA ratings board. In the scene where Jeffrey hides in the closet while Frank rapes Dorothy, we, the audience, were supposed to see Frank hit Dorothy. The cut to Jeffrey wincing in the closet was meant to make the scene more palpable for the MPAA, but some would argue it makes the scene more upsetting, that which you don't see and all that jazz. When Lynch turned in his final cut, De Laurentiis thought it was a masterpiece and started to work to get the film the attention he felt it deserved. The movie would have its world premiere at the Montreal World Film Festival on August 30th, with a full-page ad in the New York Times noting positive reviews from the likes of Stephen Schiff, David Thompson, and Kenny Turan the day before the premiere. Blue Velvet would also screen at the Toronto International Film Festival on September 12th, a week before it would open in 98 theaters in the United States and Canada. The film would gross nearly $800,000 in its first three days, and in the greater Los Angeles metropolitan area, it would be the highest grossing film for the weekend, even though it was only playing on 23 screens as compared to the inexplicable number one nationwide film that week, Top Gun, which was still playing at 65 theaters in the area after 19 weeks. The film may be considered a masterpiece today, but in 1986 it would split critics and audiences alike. The film would never place in the top 10 films of any week it was in release, nor would it play in more than 188 theaters at any time in its run. The movie would play through the rest of 1986, but it would finish with only $8.5 million in ticket sales. That would be good enough for 80th place for movies released in 1986, just a bit below Manhunter, but just above another classic that took years to be appreciated, Jonathan Demme's Something Wild. The film would win awards for Best Picture from the Boston Society of Film Critics and the National Society of Film Critics, and Lynch would win Best Director and or Best Screenplay from several other critics groups. However, at the Academy Awards, the film would only get one nomination, David Lynch for Best Director. He would lose to Oliver Stone and Platoon, but the film would solidify Lynch's place in the cinema pantheon as a true visionary and one really weird individual. One person who would never be confused with David Lynch is Charles Martin Smith. The star of American Graffiti and Never Cry Wolf would be making his feature directing debut with the camp horror film Trick or Treat. Mark Price, Skippy from TV's Family Ties, stars as a high school outcast who discovers the ghost of his recently deceased hero, heavy metal singer Sammy Kerr, speaking to him from the only copy of the Dead Rockers' final as yet unreleased album. Dancer Tony Fields, 
famous for appearing in the music videos for Michael Jackson's Beat It and Thriller, as well as Richard Attenborough's movie version of the Broadway classic A Chorus Line, would star as the rocker. Gene Simmons was originally offered the role, but he instead opted to play the radio DJ who gives Skippy from TV's Family Ties the album, and Ozzy Osbourne shows up as a televangelist who condemns the evils of heavy metal music. That's the level of intelligence of this film. And as you would expect from a film starring Skippy from TV's Family Ties, the public didn't really rush to theaters to see it. On its opening weekend, October 24th through 26th, the film would gross $2.9 million from 1,267 theaters, good enough for fifth place, but a full third less than the week's biggest new opener, the ridiculously racist C. Thomas Howell blackface comedy Soul Man. After a few weeks, with Halloween in its rearview mirror, Trick or Treat would leave theaters with a final gross of $6.8 million. The biggest budgeted film DEG would make was the $25 million adaptation of James Clavell's novel Taipan. One might presume this adaptation was a quickie attempt to cash in on the massive success of the early 1980s NBC TV miniseries Shogun, also based on one of Clavell's Asian saga novels, but attempts to bring Taipan to the screen began soon after its 1966 publication, nearly a decade before Shogun was completed. Producer Martin Ransahoff, who first found success on the small screen with Mr. Ed and the Beverly Hillbillies before hitting the big time on the big screen with successes like The Sandpiper with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton and The Cincinnati Kid with Steve McQueen, would buy the screen rights to Taipan in 1968 and setting up the project at MGM with Michael Anderson directing The Prisoner Star and co-creator Patrick McGuin. But MGM would balk at the then $26 million budget, which would have, at the time, been the second most expensive film ever made, just behind 1963's Cleopatra, and MGM would postpone the project indefinitely in 1970. Five years later, the legendary Hong Kong film producer Sir Run Run Shaw would buy the rights from MGM and set up a $12 million production at Universal Pictures with High Noon and Bridge on the River choir writer Carl Foreman writing a new draft of the script. But Universal would quickly lose interest. A couple years after that, a Swiss producer, Georges-Alain Vu, would hire novelist and Three Musketeers screenwriter George MacDonald Fraser to take another pass at the story, and that script would get the attention of Fantastic Voyage director Richard Fleischer and Steve McQueen. But McQueen would leave the project when he briefly retired from acting, but not before collecting $1 million as part of his pay-or-play deal. McQueen would be replaced with Roger Moore, who called Fraser's script one of the best he'd ever read, but the financing would fall apart before Moore needed to report to the set of Moonraker. For a brief moment, it looked like Sean Connery would star for director Martin Ritt, but V's option would expire before he could get it all together. And then the Shogun miniseries premiered to blockbuster ratings in September 1980, but it would be another three years before De Laurentiis would pick up the screen rights to Taipan. 
He'd set the project up at Orion Pictures and tried to get Connery back on board, but the actor politely declined. When De Laurentiis set up his new studio, he was able to get the project moved from Orion to DEG, and shooting would begin in late 1985 with Thornbird star Brian Brown and Joan Chen in the leads, and Canadian filmmaker Daryl Duke, whose biggest film before this had been the $3 million heist film The Silent Partner with Elliot Gould and Christopher Plummer, calling the shots. Taipan would become the first English-language movie to shoot in mainland China, but even before the film was completed, De Laurentiis would admit to a New York Times reporter that filming the movie in China was a big mistake. The story itself follows the adventures of two men who moved to Hong Kong after the end of the First Opium War in 1842, who try and destroy each other as they try to become the operator of a harbor that will help the small, mostly uninhabited island become a major trading post in years to come. And you can't say De Laurentiis cheaped out trying to make this film the best it can be. The final screenwriters for the film were John Briley, who won an Oscar writing the 1982 Best Picture winner Gandhi, Stanley Mann, who was nominated for an Oscar for the 1965 William Wyler movie The Collector, and James Clavell himself. Maurice Jarre, who would write the score to every David Lean movie from Lawrence of Arabia on, would create the music. Jack Cardiff, the extraordinary cinematographer and director, who shot the Powell and Pressburger masterpiece A Matter of Life and Death, would light this film, and Anthony Gibbs, who credits include Tom Jones, Fiddler on the Roof, and Rollerball, would cut the film together. But Duke, the director, was clearly out of his league here. You can hire the best writers, and the best composer, and the best cinematographer, and the best editor, but if the director isn't quite up to the task, there's only so much these masters can do to make that movie work. When the film finally opened on November 7th, the reviews were savage, and theaters mostly empty. Its $1.86 million opening weekend was good enough for fifth place, and would be the highest grossing of seven new movies to open that weekend, but the number one movie this weekend, Crocodile Dundee, would do nearly four times that amount, and the film had opened several weeks earlier. By weekend number two, it would lose more than 55% of its audience, and it would leave theaters altogether after only eight weeks and barely $4 million in ticket sales. Bruce Beresford's Crimes of the Heart was an embarrassment of riches when it came to the casting of great female actresses of the time. Based on Beth Henley's 1979 Pulitzer Prize-winning play, the story follows three sisters who have reunited at their family home in Hazelhurst, Mississippi, to come and settle the consequences of their past indiscretions. Diane Keaton was the eldest sister, Lenny, Jessica Lang, the middle sister, Meg, and Sissy Spacek, the younger sister, Babe. The film also starred Sam Shepard and Tess Harper. While the $9 million movie would get great reviews when it arrived in theaters on December 12th, it would often suffer unfair comparisons to another 1986 movie that featured three great actresses playing messed up sisters with messed up relationships, Woody Allen's Hannah and Her Sisters. 
but audiences didn't seem to mind. Opening in just 246 theaters, the film would open in seventh place with $1.4 million, and its per-screen average would be the second highest of the films in the top 12. The film would continue to play well throughout the end of the year and into early 1987, persistently adding screens every week for the first month of and a half of its run, topping out with 685 playdates in week 7, and finishing its run with $22.9 million after nearly six months. That total would end up being the highest gross for any DEG movie released. Sissy Spacek would be nominated for Best Actress for her role as Babe, as would Tess Harper in the supporting category as the gossipy cousin who still lives next door. Beth Henley would get a nod for the screen adaptation of her play. One week after Crimes of the Heart was released, DEG would unleash its hoped-for Christmas blockbuster. How's our boy doing? Incredible. Now, easy, big guy. Hold on. They're approximately 50 feet tall, wearing their birthday suits. God, look at the size of him. Did you say your beast is a female? In 1976, Dino De Laurentiis produced King Kong, an updated version of the 1933 classic. It wasn't a very good film, but it was a massive success at the box office during the Christmas season, grossing more than $90 million. There was going to be a sequel someday. But instead of Jeff Bridges and Jessica Lange in the lead roles, like in the 1976 film, were treated to Linda Hamilton and Brian Kerwin. And instead of getting a bigger budget than the first film, which is often customary with a sequel, King Kong Lives would see a cut in the budget from $24 million for the 1976 film to $18 million 10 years later. Now, just to keep up with inflation over that 10-year period, that $24 million budget in 1976 would have been equivalent to $46 million in 1986, 
So the sequel is actually working with a budget about 60% smaller. And the lack of quality of that slash was evident on screen. John Gillerman, who directed that 1976 remake, came back to direct the sequel. Well, sort of. The director of such films as The Towering Inferno and Death on the Nile was still heartbroken over the death of his son Michael during the making of the atrocious 1984 Tanya Roberts movie Sheena, Queen of the Jungle. And Gillerman would often disappear during the production of King Kong Lives to go sailing. After an argument with the line producer, Gillerman would vanish for several days, and filming would be completed by Charles McCracken, a 21-year-old filmmaker hired by the production to do some behind-the-scenes shooting for publicity purposes. The final film was god-awful. I was an assistant manager at the Del Mar Theater in Santa Cruz at the time, and one of our responsibilities as managers was to build up the films and watch them before the, we screened them for the public. There were four movies opening in wide release that weekend, and our four-screen theater would be playing two of them, King Kong Lives and the Richard Gere Kim Basinger drama No Mercy. Since one person is unable to watch two movies in different theaters at the same time, it came down to me and another assistant manager, Todd, to draw straws to see which one of us would watch with which movie. I drew King Kong Lives, and as bad as No Mercy is, it wasn't as truly awful as King Kong Lives. To this day, the film has never received a positive review from any professional film critic, and its opening weekend was a disaster. $1.17 million from 1,105 theaters. It would be gone from theaters in a matter of weeks, having sold only $4.7 million worth of tickets. One of the stories of how badly this film has performed over its lifetime comes from Peter Michael Goetz, one of the actors on the film. His first post-theatrical release royalty check for the movie was for, depending on which source you believe, either three cents or 12 cents, which he framed with his poster for the film, never having cashed the check. However, the film did find some success in, of all places, the Soviet Union, when in 1988, the film would become the highest grossing foreign language film released that year with $44 million in ticket sales. Even today, that film is still one of the 15 highest grossing foreign language films of all time in Russia. At the end of 1986, DEG had released 11 movies into theaters. Two of their films, Blue Velvet and Crimes of the Heart, would receive four Oscar nominations. This would be the only time any DEG movie would get an Oscar nomination. 1987's first DEG release would be Curtis Hansen's The Bedroom Window, a laughably bad neo-noir thriller starring Steve Gutenberg as a young executive who starts an affair with the wife of his boss, which spirals him into a world of dread after he lies to the police in order to protect the woman. As Sylvia, the married woman Gutenberg has an affair with, 
French superstar Isabelle Huppert would be making her first American movie appearance since the calamitous Heaven's Gate seven years earlier. And it would be her last American movie for another 17 years until 2004's I Heart Huckabees. What little of the movie there is belongs to the luminous Elizabeth McGovern, whose assault at the start of the film starts the young executive into his spiral. You'll also recognize the late great Paul Shinar as the attacker, and Maury Chaikin, Carl Lumley, and Wallace Shawn in supporting roles. But this film is a waste of the talents of the stars and of its writer and director. Opening on January 30th, the bedroom window would open to $2.9 million from 930 theaters. Better than the really lousy Rutger Hauer action movie Wanted Dead or Alive, but about half of what the Richard Pryor comedy Critical Condition, the other new opener that weekend, and the number one film in the nation, would gross. The bedroom window would be out of the top ten by its fourth weekend, and slip out of theaters a few weeks after that with $12.64 million in tickets sold. That'd be better than the next DEG release, the baffingly worthless Bob Clark courtroom comedy from the hip. Now, I've got nothing against its star, Judd Nelson. He's not a bad actor. He excels when he plays a very specific type of character. Fresh out of law school lawyer Robin Weathers is not that character. And I have nothing against Bob Clark as a filmmaker. He wasn't a bad director. He excelled when he made a very specific kind of movie. And From the Hip was not that movie. Outside of its rather impressive supporting cast, which includes Alan Arbus, a pre-in-living color David Alan Greer, Art Hindle, John Hurt, Nancy Marchand, and Darren McGavin, the film has only one interesting bit of trivia attached to it, in that this is where David E. Kelly got his start. The original script for From the Hip got Kelly, who was still a practicing lawyer in Boston at the time, the attention of Stephen Bochco, who would hire Kelly as a writer and story editor for his new NBC legal TV show, L.A. Law. Eventually, Kelly would create or co-create Doogie Howser, M.D., Picket Fences, Chicago Hope, The Practice, Alley McBeal, Boston Public, Boston Legal, and Big Little Lies amongst 24 shows that have aired on ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, Amazon, HBO, Hulu, and Disney+. Oh, and he's been married to Michelle Pfeiffer since 1993. The movie would open with $2.65 million in ticket sales on the weekend of February 6th, good enough for fifth place overall, but third in terms of new releases after the Michael J. Fox, Joan Jett music drama Light of Day and the Teresa Russell, Deborah Winger drama Black Widow. But it did beat out Crocodile Dundee, but that would be in its 20th week of release. The film would drop out of the top ten after three weeks and would hang around dollar houses long enough to finally earn $9.5 million after seven months. After the theatrical and home video success of The Evil Dead, Sam Raimi got to work on Crime Wave, 
a weird comedy horror hybrid film, which would be a collaboration with his Evil Dead lead actor, Bruce Campbell, his co-producer, Robert Tappert, and Joel Cohen, who, before directing Blood Simple with his brother Ethan, was one of the assistant editors on The Evil Dead. This time, the Cohen brothers would both be writers with Raimi on the screenplay. But Raimi would find himself shut out of the editing bay by the movie's financier and distributor, Embassy Pictures, once shooting on Crime Wave was completed. And the film would only get released theatrically on a few screens nationwide, including my theater, the Del Mar Theater in Santa Cruz. The failure of Crime Wave sent Raimi, Tappert, and Campbell right into creating a sequel to The Evil Dead. But despite the troubles they had with Embassy on Crime Wave, Raimi and his team would come to an agreement with the company, now under the control of Columbia Pictures and Coca-Cola, to make Evil Dead 2 for them. However, Dino De Laurentiis would end up buying Embassy from Coke a few weeks later, and Evil Dead 2 was one of the projects making the transfer. De Laurentiis was unsure about the movie, but Stephen King, who had championed the original Evil Dead movie years earlier and was in production on Maximum Overdrive with De Laurentiis at the time, went to bat for the guys again, and production would begin on the film in North Carolina in May 1986. The original film had been shot in a remote cabin in Tennessee on 16mm film with a budget under $100,000. Its sequel would be shot in an actual movie studio on 35mm film with a budget 50, that's 5-0, 50 times bigger than the original. Raimi was obligated to make Evil Dead 2 with the intention of an R-rated version being released. But the film he turned in was most definitely going to get an X rating. And DEG executives felt about 25% of the 84-minute long movie would need to be trimmed to secure that lower rating. And as a signatory of the Motion Picture Association of America, DEG was required to submit the film for a rating before release. So Andrew De Benedetti, one of the producers on the film, and De La Rentis's son-in-law, created a shell company called Rosebud Releasing and quote-unquote purchased the distribution rights to the film from DEG. DEG would then quote-unquote be hired by Rosebud to distribute the movie out to 340 theaters that DEG had already booked the film at. And they would use the key art for the film that DEG had already created. Miramax would use a similar tactic several years later to bypass the MPAA rating system to release Larry Clark's kids. When opening weekend, a Friday the 13th in March, came around, about 10% of the theaters originally booked to play the film decided against doing so because of the lack of an MPAA rating for the film. The 310 theaters that did open it found business to be somewhat lacking, earning just $807,000 over those first three days. Ironically, it would open on the same day as his friends Joel and Ethan Cohen's second movie, Raising Arizona, which would gross an amazing $36,000 from just one theater in New York City. 
Evil Dead 2 would never quite become what is called a hit film, but it would play for several months at drive-ins throughout the spring and summer, finally finishing with almost $6 million in ticket sales, nearly three times what the original Evil Dead made in theaters in 1983. Raimi, of course, would become one of the most successful filmmakers with his trio of Spider-Man movies, and Bruce Campbell would become a beloved pop culture figure. And they'd team for one more Evil Dead movie, 1993's Army of Darkness, which would get released through Universal Pictures, and would get released with an R rating. If one were to make a list of the worst movies to come from the 1980s, Richard Fleischer's Million Dollar Mystery would definitely be amongst the films listed at the very top. I mean, what could possibly go wrong with a film cribbed from one of the greatest comedies ever made, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, but with stars like Tom Bosley, Eddie Deason, and Rick Overton instead of Spencer Tracy, Milton Berle, and Sid Caesar? What could possibly go wrong when the impetus of the movie came from the head of the studio being inspired by seeing a line of people in queue to buy lottery tickets? What could possibly go wrong when one of the greatest stuntmen in film history, Dar Robinson, would die during a rather routine stunt gone horribly wrong? And what could possibly go wrong when the key art for your film on the, new, on the poster and newspaper ads to tell people how awesome your film is, is literally a fucking glad trash bag? Why a glad trash bag, you ask? The Glad Trash Bag is an integral part of the plot. But more importantly, it's because Dano De Laurentiis was able to get Glad to sponsor a contest tied to the movie where someone watching the movie would win $1 million. Seriously, you go to the theater, you get an entry form with your ticket, you watch the movie, and you try to piece together the clues hidden in the movie to figure out where the final million dollars is hidden. Hence... Million Dollar Mystery. In an interview with the New York Times, a month before the movie was released, Larry Gleason, the president of marketing and distribution for De Laurentiis Entertainment Group, told the newspaper that the movie was designed to reach, quote, the infrequent moviegoer, the person more interested in winning a million dollars than going to the movies. And these are the kind of people who use glad bags, housewives, who maybe go to the movies once or twice a year, unquote. What could go wrong? Well, the $9.5 million movie, a naked embrace of commercialization and consumerism, could really suck. Suck so badly that in its opening weekend, starting Friday, June 12th, the film could only sell, I don't know, maybe $513,000 worth of tickets, from 1,396 screens, its $368 per screen average would be the worst opening of all time for a movie opening on at least 1,000 screens, a dubious record it would hold on to until the release of the Jill Sholin, Don Michael Paul romantic drama Rich Girl four years later. But even today, 33 years later, it's still eighth on that list. The movie follows a group of people all eating at the same diner in Arizona 
who go after $4 million in money stolen by a longtime White House aide, who tells these strangers about the clues he's left in various places to find the money, as he is dying of a heart attack after eating the diner's world-famous chili. The movie would be gone from theaters after only three weeks, having earned just under a million dollars in ticket sales. I remember playing the movie. I think we gave out maybe 30 entry forms the two weeks we played it, and having to recycle or throw out the thousands of entry forms never used. GLAD and DEG did award the prize money, which went to a 14-year-old girl in Bakersfield, who was randomly picked from thousands of people who correctly guessed the hiding place of the last missing million inside Lady Liberty's nose. By this time, DEG had lost millions of dollars and was hoping at least one of their last five films of the year could give them the hit they desperately needed. It would be another four months after the release of Million Dollar Mystery that DEG would release their next film. Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark had a lot going for it. Bigelow was newly dating fellow director James Cameron, and her film featured three of the stars of her boyfriend's most recent hit film, Aliens, in Jeanette Goldstein, Lance Henriksen, and Bill Paxton. The film also starred two up-and-coming actors in Adrian Pazdar and Jenny Wright. The film would combine two somewhat popular genres at the time, vampire movies and westerns, in a story about a young man in a small Midwest town who becomes involved with a family of nomadic American vampires. The film would get some really great reviews when it was released on October 2nd, just in time for Halloween, but maybe audiences were all vamped out after The Lost Boys, which had been a hit two months earlier. Those great reviews would come from the likes of Richard Corliss and Richard Schickel from Time Magazine, Jonathan Rosenbaum of the Chicago Reader, and Hal Hinson of the Washington Post. But when it opened in 262 theaters, it would only bring in $636,000 during its first three days. And it would barely make it to Halloween weekend at the end of the month, with $3.3 million in ticket sales after five weeks. Director John Hancock's sixth film, Weeds, was another movie that had a long walk to production. In 1965, Hancock was the artistic director for the San Francisco Actors Workshop, and he would stage a production of a play called The Cage, which had been written by Rick Clucky, a prisoner at San Quentin serving a term for armed robbery, aggravated assault, and kidnapping. Clucky would get released from prison after 11 years behind bars, in large part thanks to a critic for a Bay Area newspaper, Barbara Blyden, who had seen the play and had been moved to do something about his incarceration. Shortly after his release from prison, Clutchy and Blyden would marry, although it would end in divorce six years later. Clutchy and Hancock remained in touch over the years, and looking for a moving project after his lackluster 1979 film California Dreamin', Hancock would work with his wife, Dorothy Tristan, to churn Clucky's story, both inside the joint and after his release, into a movie. 
1980, Hancock made a deal with Erwin Winkler and Robert Chartoff, the Oscar-winning producers of Rocky, to make the movie at MGM for $15 million with Robert De Niro in the lead role. But that deal would collapse within a year. Winkler and Chartoff would then take the project to British production company EMI, the, co the company behind such classics as Monty Python and the Holy Grail and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, again with De Niro in the lead, but that deal would fall apart before cameras could roll. In 1983, there was another attempt to make the film with a lesser actor in the lead and a budget of only $8 million, but again, nothing would come of that. In 1985, Winkler and Chartoff had let their option lapse, and Hancock would get the script to DEG, who agreed to make the now $12 million movie with Nick Nolte in the lead. Production would begin at DEG Studios in North Carolina in November of 1986, but there'd be drama brewing almost as soon as the shooting began. Clutchy had been paid $200,000 for the rights to his life story, and a guarantee both that he would have a speaking role in the film and that members of his San Quentin drama workshop would have roles in the film as well. His role in the film would have no speaking lines, and none of his drama workshop participants would appear in the movie. He was also displeased that the final film gave weight to claims that he derived parts of the cage from a prison-set drama, Death Watch, by French author Jean Genet. It also didn't help that while filming at a real prison outside Wilmington, one of the members of the film crew bonded with one of the inmates and would help that prisoner escape after the film crew packed up one day. The reviews for Weeds were decent, and a number of critics praised the work of Nick Nolte, and early audiences were enthusiastic for the film. Opening in eight theaters in Los Angeles and New York on October 16th, Weeds would gross a very respectable $133,000. The only film that would have a higher per-screen average that weekend would be Barbara Schroeder's Charles Bogowski drama Barfly, which only opened on two screens. It would perform better than David Mamet's House of Games and John Borman's eventual Best Picture nominee Hope and Glory, both of which also opened the same weekend. Weeds would expand from 8 to 86 screens the following weekend, but the per-screen average would drop nearly 75%, showing the film had little impact outside those two metropolitan areas. The film would slowly fade away, as would Nolte's hopes for an Oscar nomination, and after 12 weeks, the film would end its run with but $2.3 million in ticket sales. Bob Giraldi, the director of such music videos as Michael Jackson's Beat It and Lionel Richie's All Night Long, would make his feature directing debut with Hiding Out, another film in a long, 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 long line of adults who become high school students in order to avoid being killed by the mob movies. This time, the adult is John Cryer, and he's a New York City stockbroker who, along with two other brokers in his office, have been passing bogus bond notes for a mobster awaiting trial. He is placed in protective custody by the FBI after one of his buddies is murdered, but he manages to escape 
heading off to his cousin and aunt's place in Delaware to, you know, hide out. It's a stupid movie in every way imaginable, but it's not Cryer's worst movie of the year. That ignoble title goes to Morgan Stewart's Coming Home, but this one is still pretty crappy. Even appearances from Annabeth Gish, Keith Coogan, John Spencer, and Richard Portnow cannot save this wretched mess. The $7 million production was supported with a $6 million national ad buy to support its November 6th opening on 988 screens. It would open in the top 10, but just barely. Its $2.06 million opening weekend gross would beat out the $1.91 million Princess Bride would make in its seventh week of release, but it would be beaten by new openers Hello Again, Less Than Zero, and Death Wish 4. Yes, there was a Death Wish 4, and more people wanted to see that than this. Hiding Out would quickly drop from first-run theaters to dollar houses, and ended its entire theatrical run in just nine weeks, with only $7.02 million to show for its trouble. Giraldi would not direct another feature for 13 years, and he'd never direct another movie after that. In 1986, Tom McLaughlin would help bring a temporary new life to the Friday the 13th cinematic universe, when he helped retcon Jason Voorhees into the monster we all now love with Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives. And for his resurrecting that fallow franchise, his reward was to be able to direct his dream project, Date with an Angel, a romantic comedy about as far away from the two horror-centric projects that made him a name in movies. Michael E. Knight stars as an executive at a cosmetics company who is on the verge of getting married to Phoebe Cates, the spoiled daughter of his boss. That is, until he falls for an angel, in the form of French actress Emmanuel Bayer, who has fallen to Earth after she's collided with an Earth-orbiting satellite. General wackiness ensues as he tries to protect his angel, while he slowly dies from a brain tumor, and while his shotgun-toting fiancé decides to blow everything to smithereens over their failed relationship. I vaguely remember this movie having seen it one time, 33 years ago. What I remember is that I can understand why any man would give up on someone like Phoebe Cates when it came to someone like Emmanuel Bayer, and I was pissed off Phoebe Cates hadn't made a movie since Gremlins three years earlier and decided this nonsense was worthy of her talents. I wouldn't be shocked if you don't remember the movie, even if you were an avid moviegoer in 1987. The film had no impact whatsoever. Opening in 843 theaters on November 20th, the Friday before Thanksgiving, the official start of the holiday movie season, Date with an Angel could only rustle up about $816,000 in ticket sales from 843 theaters. Prince's concert movie, Sign O the Times, only opened in 234 theaters that weekend and managed to gross nearly a million dollars. 
Day with an Angel would kick around theaters for six more weeks before heading back to heaven with a gross just under $2 million. DEG's final movie for 1987 would be the Donald Sutherland comedy The Trouble with Spies. The $6 million movie was the first movie to be financed completely by the cable movie channel HBO, independent from their TriStar Pictures deal with Columbia Pictures and the CBS Television Network. The movie would be shot on location in Ibiza and in Madrid and would be completed by the end of the year. Except the year was 1984, and three years after that, the film was still without a distributor. Even TriStar wanted nothing to do with this film, even with a cast that also included Ned Beatty, Gregory Sierra, Robert Morley, and Ruth Gordon, who had passed away in 1985 and for whom this would be her final film performance. DEG, ever needing more films to keep that distribution pipeline going, would pick up the movie for distribution in July of 1987 and prep it for release in the fall. There apparently was some kind of test engagement in the fall of 1987 in Dallas, Houston, and Seattle before DEG released the film in Los Angeles, New York City, and other major metropolitan areas on December 4th. The film was so bad, Vincent Canby of the New York Times didn't review the movie so much as warn people with an amazing brevity of less than 200 words to not seek this movie out and audiences listened. Between those two releases, the film would gross just $205,000. And then... Nothing. They were supposed to release the Werner Herzog-Klaus Kinski collaboration Cobra Verde on December 11th, but that never happened. They were supposed to release the James Clickenhouse action drama film Shakedown, with Sam Elliott and Peter Weller in his first movie after RoboCop, but Glickenhaus would take back control of his movie and sell it to Universal Pictures. They were supposed to release the Peter Bogdanovich comedy Illegally Yours with Rob Lowe in July 1987, but a couple of bad test screenings pushed the release date into 1988. Eventually, Bogdanovich would get back control of his movie, and he would get it released by United Artists a week after Shakedown. There were other movies that they were supposed to release. Sam Winston's Pumpkinhead, the Tim Robbins John Cusack comedy Tapeheads, which we covered in our previous episode, Christopher Coppola's Dracula's Widow, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, the Jeff Goldblum, Gina Davis, Jim Carrey sci-fi comedy Earth Girls Are Easy, and William Friedkin's Rampage. The collapse of the De Laurentiis Entertainment Group should not have been a surprise to anyone. As a public company, they were required to file quarterly reports with the Securities and Exchange Commission, and in their third quarter 1987 10-Q form, the company warned of a dire balance sheet that could result in a default of their bank loans as early as November 1987. The investment firms of Bear Stearns and Payne Weber both tried to help the famed producer, but the stock market crash of October 19, 1987, known colloquially as Black Monday, put an end to those hopes. DEG would finally file for bankruptcy on August 16, 1988, 
the studio space in North Carolina and most other DEG assets would be sold to Kuroko Pictures, the future producers of Terminator 2 and Total Recall, while the film library, which still included most of the embassy titles from the 1950s to the 1980s, would be sold to a French film company, Peravision, which itself was a division of the French cosmetics company, L'Oreal. So, what happened? It's something we'll see happen time and time again with so many other independent 1980s film distributors. In an August 1987 Los Angeles Times article about the impending collapse of the studio, an analyst for a New York-based investment firm's called it right off the bat. About two years ago, the analyst was quoted as saying, a fallacious concept arose in the investments community that, with all of the ancillary markets, you couldn't lose money in the movie business. As a result, the whole movie-making group was painted by Wall Street with the same positive brush, and many IPOs came forward. But that was an untruth put forward to investors, a bunch of baloney, he said. Today, we have many smaller movie companies hurting on the earnings side because their inability to have many or any theatrical hits. The industry has not changed that much. The main game is still theatrical box office. Ancillary markets may help protect you, but they are not the panacea. Thank you for listening. We'll talk again soon. The Film Jerk Podcast has been written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens. As we are an independent podcast without sponsors or a network of websites to help promote the show, we rely on word of mouth to get the word out about the show. So please, help get the word out. Please post about the podcast on your socials. Please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast sources. Good ratings and reviews help get the podcast higher rankings, which help get the show seen by more potential listeners. And as always, I look forward to your comments about the show. You can leave me a note on this podcast's page at filmjerk.com, or, or you can leave me a message on my Twitter feeds at Edward A. Havens or at FilmJerk. The FilmJerk podcast has been a production of idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. Mm-hmm.